702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith is with us to take all of your science-related questions. Give us a call, 011-883-0702 in the WhatsApp line, 072-702-1702. Doctor, happy Monday. How are you doing? Happy Monday. I'm very good. How are you? I am good, and I'm wondering if there is a science to children behaving badly in front of their parents, but not badly in front of others. Well, I think there is actually, because I think it's more that children feel more secure when they're mm. in the presence of their parents. And so they feel they can push boundaries more because A, the parents will tell them, don't do that, mostly. Yes. And also, when they're in the presence of their parents, the one who will discipline them is their parents rather than a stranger or somebody else. And they're more frightened of strangers. Every, everyone who's little has stranger danger. So I think it might be there's an element of emboldenment because of the presence of the parents. But it's just my speculation. I'm not a child psychologist, so if anyone knows better, do do share. Okay, okay. And I, th- I think that's quite a fair one because I saw somewhere where they were saying um, which, if a child had to choose a parent, which one would they choose? And it's, it's something along the, the lines of the ones that makes them feel the most secure. So even if they don't get along on a day-to-day, but the one that they know they've given the most upheaval and love them anyways is the parent that they would choose. Probably. It's the one they can get away with the most in front of. Definitely. All right. We've got questions coming in. 011-883-0702 in the WhatsApp line. 072-702-1702. We're going to kick off with an interesting one. It says, Doctor, this is from a Pi Pacific. Is there any evidence and real-world applications of the coexistence of the past, present, and future? I'm not really sure I understand the question. What what are they actually asking, do you think? I mean, I think they're trying to ask a question around time. Um, and and if if this whole thing of past, present and future is a real thing or it's just an application that we made as human beings. Like, is there well, something the maybe that back in the day that spoke of a history? I'm not sure. No, me neither. I mean, obviously, we we know that time exists in the sense that we can put an age on the universe Mm. because we can see way back in time because light has a finite speed. It travels at 300,000 kilometers a second. And because it can't break that, if we look at light that's traversed enormous distances across the universe, we're looking back in time. So we know that there is a clock ticking in terms of the evolution of our universe and we know that clock started to tick based on our modeling of the universe and measurements we've made about 13.8 billion years ago so definitely a part back as far as that there's obviously the present because we're experiencing it and we know that the future exists because we're traveling forwards in time but the future doesn't exist until we get into it because time is ticking otherwise the universe wouldn't have an age you can go back to because time relentlessly ticks, then we're only going forwards in time. We're not in all those time points at the same time. Unless you made individual time slices so tiny that you're saying, I'm, I'm considering that the here and now also contains a bit of the past and a bit of the future. But time isn't immutable, though. And this is the other weird mind-bending thing about what Einstein discovered. And this is that you can change the rate at which time ticks. And you can do that by either going very fast or going near something very, very massive, like a planet or a star. And it's a fact, weird as it may sound, that gravity is warping space-time around you, and because your feet are experiencing a bit more gravity than your head, 
time is travelling at a different speed for your feet than it is for your head. It's a tiny difference, but it's there. And we know it's there because we've done the experiments to test it. So time isn't all that it appears to be when you first look at it. All right. Um, another question coming through that reads as follows. This is from Flower Girl in Pretoria. What causes diverticulitis? Study shows it is more common from age 40. Is it on both genders? What can one do to prevent getting diverticulitis? Well, diverticulitis refers to a small outpouching or sequence of small outpouchings in the lining of the large bowel, mostly the tail end of the large bowel. And these diverticula, which are the pouches that form, they're caused by high pressure inside the intestine, which tends to push the bowel lining out between the layers of muscle. And so you get these little pouches that form. And for most people, they are not a problem. If you have uh, some diverticula, but you can get diverticular disease because what can happen is that they can become infected. And if they become infected because they get something jammed in them, like a seed or a pip or something hard, or they strangle off between the bits of muscle, then they can form an abscess. And that can be nasty and painful. It can cause bleeding. It can cause worse conditions than that. Age is certainly a risk factor. And also, if you don't have enough fiber in your diet, that's a risk factor because it's high pressure inside the intestine that seems to increase the risk of this happening, probably because it makes the muscles become stronger. And when you have higher pressure inside and a lower pressure outside around the bowel, you're more likely to push the lining out in those little blebs that form these diverticula. So eating a diet that's very rich in roughage, plenty of soluble fiber, is a good preventative, but it's also a good way to manage the situation if it does happen to you because that will reduce the risk of a problem occurring or the condition getting worse. Okay, there's a question that's come through from Sandy. Why is the resistance to antibiotics increasing? Hello, Sandy. Well, we first documented, I say we as in the scientific community, first documented antibiotic resistance as soon as antibiotics were first discovered. Alexander Fleming himself noted that if you expose microbes to these antibiotic compounds, like penicillin, you do eventually select for microbes that have the ability to fend off the effects of the antibiotic. And so the bottom line is, the more antibiotics you use, the more resistance you are going to see. And this is because you are selecting from the microbial world mutant forms of bacteria that, by chance, happen to have the ability to grow despite the effect of the antibiotic and because those forms of the microbe are successful and they're not killed by it they flourish and they pass that genetic know-how onto their progeny in other words the bacteria that they give rise to but bugs also have another cunning trick up their sleeves which is that they package the chemical know-how of how to fend off antibiotics into small shareable genetic elements which are called plasmids so when the bacteria grow, they don't just have to give birth to new genetically resistant bacteria. They also spit out these little rings of DNA, plasmids, which other bacteria, including other bacteria of completely different types, can pick up from the environment and incorporate them into their cells, 
reading the genetic know-how and therefore also becoming resistant. And this is called horizontal gene transfer. So as we use more antibiotics, we expose the environment to more antibiotics. We increase the representation in the environment of forms of bacteria that can fend off those antibiotics. And then those bacteria share the genetic know-how of how to do that more broadly across the antibiotic spectrum until you get to a point where so many of the bacteria carry that particular form that the antibiotic becomes much less used. And that's unfortunately the situation we're now getting towards. Mm. All right, thank you so much for that question. Sandy, let's go to Peter from Santon. Hi. Hi, uh, Chris. How do you uh, determine if somebody is a, is a genius? Um, uh, what they tell you, you Peter, they tell you. That's how you determine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, follow-up question that I'm going to ask you mm. after, after I hear the answer from Chris. Well, you're going to have to give it uh, uh, all at one go so that Chris can have an opportunity to give the entire answer. Well, yeah, it might, because, okay, uh, I know he's a modest guy. I think he's a genius, so I wanted to know if ever he's gone through those tests and what was what was the result, what is the result mm. show in terms of him. But I didn't want him to, to tell him it's very fast because I know he's a modest guy. Nice question. I absolutely love that, Peter. Chris, Dr. Chris, I stand by the fact that a genius will tell you he's a genius. That's how you know he's the <laughs> one. <laughs> well, it depends what you define as genius and mm. what you define as intelligence. This is not something that, that you can say, this is intelligence. It's a whole raft of different things. And some people are really, really good at doing sport. Some people are really, really good at doing cryptic crosswords, solving puzzles. Other people are amazing at navigating and finding their way around from A to B with almost nothing to go on. Other people having good memories. Other people are linguistically very gifted. And I think that's the, the thing, that there's no one definition of a genius. Now, you could say this is an IQ above a certain amount, but these are people who are very good at doing certain types of tests, for example. So I don't think there's one specific kind of genius. And I think that if you, if you look at the population as a whole, the reason that humans are so successful as a species is because we're social. We work together and we bring all of our different skills together as a community and we all contribute something to society where we're all individually extremely good at certain things and so people who are less good at certain things benefit from the ones that are very good at the mm. thing that that person's less good at and that's what makes us very successful and of course there are standout people in the community who are particularly gifted in certain areas and some people singing dancing speaking good vocabulary, learning languages. So I don't think there's one easy way to just put your finger on and say that is a genius because some people are, I mean, I, I watch these people do these maths problems or solve things and I think, how do they do that? That's just amazing. I've got no insight into how to do that at all. And then someone says, but if you stand up and just give a talk and you do it with no notes and you say it's got to be five minutes long and you explain something in five minutes in terms that people can understand, how do you do that? Mm. For me, that's easy. I've had a lot of practice, but that's easy for me and I've got a good memory. Um, but hand me a guitar and tell me to play something, I wouldn't know where to start. Mm. So I think it's really important that we bear in mind that we're, we're all good at something and it's about finding the thing that you're really good at and really putting your effort in that direction and hoping that people will pay you money to do it because then you've got a win-win. And I think uh, what I love about what you're saying, Dr. Chris Smith, is that um, sometimes people are, for example, genius at connecting people. 
and that's that's their genius. They know how to bring together the right people for magic to happen. So they not might not be the ones making the magic, let's say, in a recording studio with a song, but they'll be able to say, ooh, I heard this voice and I heard that rapper. Together, they're going to make a hit song. And maybe that's their genius. So it becomes something immeasurable. But um, I know that in, what is that thing called where they measure your IQ and then you're part of that society? I can't remember the name. Mensa. Mensa, right. So if there's a Mensa that people can go and be a part of, um, is that skewed um, in the direction of sciences in particular or certain academics? No, I don't think it is because the tests that, you tend to do for these sorts of intelligence tests, they include verbal reasoning, they include pattern recognition. So it's, it's very general and designed to probe different aspects of thought processes and connecting information and seeing relationships. So it's not just about learning a fact and regurgitating it, because memory is part and parcel of intelligence, but mm. it's not everything. So you can remember and know lots of things, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be the person who has the light bulb moment that sees the solution to a big problem. And some people are Einstein said, I think it was Einstein, said he was um, dyslexic and really struggled with many things because of dyslexia, but was bloody good at maths. Mm, mm, mm. All right, thank you so much. So I'm assuming you're not going to say you're a genius, doctor? I, I'm definitely not a genius. <laughs> um, absolutely not a genius. Um, a very good actor. <laughs> I, I will say you're a genius at doing the Naked Scientist for the number of years you've done it and for always having an answer, even if the answer is, I will have to find out. I will, I will say you definitely are a genius in that respect. So more of the questions that are coming through on the WhatsApp line 0727021702. One says, this is from Happy from uh, Gresswold. My question is, when I was leaving, living in the rural areas, I used to eat pup every day and I never gained weight. But currently when I eat pup every day, I gain a lot of weight. What could be the cause of that change? Well, a number of things affect how much we weigh. It's not just what you put in. It's what you do with yourself. And if you look at the world as a whole, about 30, 40 years ago, only about 10, 5, 10% 10 of the population were overweight at that time. And go back further than that, and almost no one was overweight. But now, a very significant proportion, if not half, the world population is overweight or obese. That's a huge change in a very short space of time. So something's changed about our lifestyle in general. And this includes how active we are. So if you go back in time, 50 years or so, about half of the people doing jobs in countries like South Africa were doing physical jobs. Busy, on their feet all day, burning a lot of calories. Nowadays, the number of people who are doing that amounts to about 5% of the population. So a really big turnaround in terms of levels of physical activity. But the amount we're eating, the number of calories we're taking in, is about the same today as it was then. Mm. So, therefore, we've got to find somewhere for the extra calories to go. They're not going at the end of a shovel or lifting heavy things. Therefore, they're going around our waistlines. That's the first point. Second point is that what we're eating has changed as well. We've seen diets shift away from um, kind of more traditional sorts of foodstuffs to a lot more processed food. And processed foods taste great. They're very, very easy to consume in excess. They're very seductive. We've all had the Moorish effect where you reach for the biscuit and you think, I'll just have one more. And then one more turns into one more after one more and then another one after that. And before you know it, you've eaten the whole packet. 
because they're so easy to eat, they're so seductive, they taste great, and they involve almost no effort to get a huge amount of calories down your neck. And as a result, we all tend to overeat, so we're being seduced into eating far too much, much more than we should. And most people don't realise how many junk calories they eat every day. So although this individual is blaming it on one particular foodstuff, there's probably a whole suite of things that are going on in the background, including energy drinks, other sugary drinks and snacks, huge amounts of energy, which you don't realise you're taking in. You get it in really quickly, it makes you feel good, so you do it again, and add up Every day you're a couple of hundred calories more than you need and over a year it turns into about half a stone in weight. Thank you so much uh, for that one. I'm sure many of people are like, oh my goodness, I used to enjoy eating like this. I might have to change my ways. Jabulani from Four Ways, hi. Hi Hello, Jabulani, me? go ahead. Hi, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I was just wondering if uh, um, um, the, the naked scientists can just break break it down for me. They, I'm, I've got a, this fascination with aircraft, be it passenger flight uh, aircraft or maybe the fighter jet. It doesn't. It blows my mind how this thing, heavy thing, can go up and and turn and and resist um, the the the. The, the gravity and all that, like, can you just break it down? It, it just, it just beats my mind, you know? Thank you so much. Uh, mine too. Javilani. I often think that, I think if I went back a couple of hundred years and, and I showed someone an aeroplane and said there are maybe 500 people up there on that thing, which might weigh 500 tons when it's full of fuel and people and luggage, they would be absolutely in awe, awestruck. And how can that possibly get off the ground? And I still experience that today. And really it comes down to physics, which is hundreds of years old when Isaac Newton first conceived them. But the basic way a plane works is because it has wings and those wings create lift. And that lift opposes the action of gravity, which is trying to pull that mass of the plane, its passengers and the luggage and the fuel down onto the ground. So how's it work? Well, you have wings, the plane is pushing itself along through the air with engines, the wings are shaped in such a way that the air is pushed down by the underside of the wings or pulled down by the top surface of the wings. And if you push on something, it pushes back on you as hard. So if you push the air down hard enough, it pushes back on you hard enough that it lifts you up. Or if you pull the air down onto the wing hard enough, it will pull down back on you upwards hard enough to overcome the effect of gravity pulling the plane downwards. And as Isaac Newton also told us that things carry on moving at a constant speed unless a net force acts on them. That's his first law. So if a plane's going along in a straight line, then the engines must be creating enough force to overcome the drag because of the air, so the friction from the air. They must be creating enough lift from the wings to overcome the effect of gravity. And if the plane wants to turn, you therefore need a net force on the plane to make it change direction. How do you do that? Well, number of ways. One of them is you use the rudder. And if you put your foot on the rudder paddles, you can bend the rudder in the same way as it will with a boat. And you put material in the way of the air that's going past. So you have to deflect the air off the rudder. And if you push on the air away from the plane with the rudder, the air's going to push you back the other way and swing the back of the plane round. And so the plane steers partly that way. The other way is that you can change the ailerons in the wings. So you apply more or more lift off of a wing accordingly. And in that way, you pull the plane backwards or allow a wing to rise alternately. 
and that's how you steer an aircraft. So that's how you get it going, it's how you keep it in the air, and it's how you turn it. Thank you so much for that question. Very quickly, because I see two people have asked the same question. Anonymous is saying, no matter how good my hygiene, what causes the bad breath or body odor? More than one person has asked this, and you have a minute, doctor. Being the genius that you are, I know you can do it. It's all down to bacteria. (laughs) And Mm. the reason is that our skin... Everywhere there's damp is riddled with bacteria, and that includes your mouth. There are millions of microbes in your mouth. They are eating what you eat. They are also eating you, dead skin, sweat. There's also oils coming out in your sweat, which are food for bacteria. And when these microbes, and also fungi, eat these things, they, in the same way as you might have a big meal and burp, they have a big meal of you, and then they burp out various gases and some of those gases are whiffy, and especially things that they've been breaking down which contain sulfur-containing chemicals, and they will produce smells, and if they're in your mouth, they produce mouth smells and bad breath, especially if you haven't cleaned your teeth or you've got gum disease, gingivitis, lots of plaque riddled with bacteria. If it's in your armpit, then you just need to go and have a shower and wash off the bacteria.